Where in the world can you take $25,000 of real money that you have and go put it down on a $200,000 asset Mm -hmm. and let the appreciation of the whole asset climb when you're only in for 25 grand as long as you can tote the note? Mm -hmm. That's an incredible, powerful investment vehicle that you don't get with anything else. Cars depreciate, everything else, you know, I mean, stock market's a guessing game. I don't throw darts at on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I am really excited to have none other than John Bradford in studio. John, thanks for coming on. You bet. Thanks for having me. Well, John, one of the things I wanted to get into with you is just to learn a little bit more about you and some of your background. You've done a, lot, done a lot of work in the industry, out of the industry, and we've met a number of times. But frankly, John, I don't know a ton about <laughs> your background, some of the early days. I'd just love to hear about that. Where are you from originally? Uh, so I grew up in South Carolina, a small town outside of Charleston. Uh, studied engineering in college. Uh, was in, Actually lived in Texas, which is where we're filming this. Uh, lived in Texas for one year working for ExxonMobil as an engineer. Um, Exxon moved me to Tennessee. Uh, they said, John, you're going to go to Memphis. And I literally knew little, very little about Memphis, except the birthplace of Elvis and all that good stuff. And so I uh, went to Memphis for six years. Uh, while I was in Memphis working for Exxon as an engineer, I um, wanted to get an MBA. So I did a, uh, an executive like MBA program where I worked for Exxon during the week and went to, um, I guess, the program on uh, every Saturday. Mm. And Somehow while doing that, I found myself becoming the University of Memphis Tiger mascot. Wow. So I uh, had a lot of fun. Met a lot of people in Memphis being the university mascot because you meet a ton of people doing that. And uh, it was just sort of a random thing that I was asked to do it and did it for two years. Um, And then IBM recruited me after getting my MBA. Then they moved me to Charlotte, was a 10-year IBM guy, and started taking my – I was in sales and then took my commissions and started buying real estate as like, I guess a hobby slash levered investment. And that's how I got into property management because I was managing my own assets. And I had friends at both Exxon and IBM that I, I keep pretty good bridges, I think. I'm a pretty social guy. Mm-hmm. And they said, John, go find, a, go find me a house and I want you to manage it. And so I started doing that. It just kind of snowballed. And that's there. where that's how I got into property management. Awesome. Yeah. I didn't peg you for an engineer. Yeah. I, I, you know, I guess, you know, my wife would call me a mathlete. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess I'm atypical. I mean, I'm pretty social, like I said, I'm a social guy and most engineers are quiet and introverted and I don't fit the mold. Um, but I knew I didn't want to be an engineer forever. I just, I don't know, I, I guess I felt like, uh, I had this idea that if I was going to be an environment, I was an environmental engineer mm. and I had this idea that if I was an environmental engineer, I would be outside all the time. And I love outdoors. I like to fish and camp. And so I said, well, I'll just be an environmental engineer. And, and then, of course, I go into corporate America where I was never outside. I was always in a suit uh, at gas stations. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so but I'll, that's, that's in my rearview mirror now. Well, tell me a little bit about the training at those two large organizations, yeah. Exxon and IBM. You know, you, you would hope working in an organization of that size, aside from comp and a big ladder to climb, one of the things you would really hope for is some really great training. What did that look like? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that I, I think people uh, they throw stones at corporate America. I had really great experiences at both Exxon and IBM. Um, and I, and I'm t- typically an all-in guy. I mean, so I take advantage of whatever programs 
the, the corporations had to offer. So like, for example, at Exxon, safety was a big deal, especially on the heels of, you know, even not to date myself, but at some point there's this giant oil spill called Exxon Valdez. And um, even though that was like, I think, 15 years prior to me going to Exxon, it was still incredibly important to the company. So like somehow I was selected to be the liaison for the environmental engineering group to this big safety committee. And and it really let me, um, I think, put me on a career path at Exxon. Um, I was affectionately called Exxon John. I became an Exxon coach. Um, I was a trainer. So I would go to um, um, new company stores and, and gas stations, as, as, as trivial as they sound, they're incredibly important, number one, because um, we need them. And number two, uh, they pr- they're big job creators. And so we were building these monster convenience stores. We had partnered with Walt Disney uh, to try to make the convenience store experience welcoming. And I know it sounds really bizarre, but there's a, there's a mentality to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to get myself a seat at the table during all of that to better understand the branding. And so when you went into a uh, Exxon gas station, when you were leaving, there was a sign over the door that said, see you tomorrow. And part of Disney's strategy is not to get you there. They're planning on how they bring you back. Mm-hmm. And so Exxon was trying to emulate that at the gas stations. And it wasn't just at the pump. You know, the pump is where they make some money, but the real money in convenience stores is the dispensed goods. And so we need to get you in the store. We want you to buy the coffee. We want you to buy the Danish, et cetera. And then we want you to come back tomorrow. So I learned all those things as a 22-year-old engineer who was probably more interested in climbing the corporate ladder at Exxon. And most people at Exxon, not most, but a lot of the people are technical in nature. They're, they're an innovative company. And so, I don't know, I thought I'd go just climb the ladder. And I loved them. And it was a real shock when I left the company. But I, uh, and IBM, a similar example. I, um, I can just ask you a little bit more about Exxon. Yeah, sure. As, as that name Exxon comes up, I don't think about retail. I think about Think about fuel, think about fuel processing, but you're saying that the retail component was actually a fairly meaningful part of the overall. Yeah, big part. So uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not from the north, but there's a big chain in the north called Wawa. I'm familiar. Okay, so Wawa. Um, so this was, I was not familiar with it, but I became familiar with them. So Wawa is known for coffee and coffee are super high margin item, super high margin item. And so, um, and this was like in the coffee wars, really even before Starbucks was really a Starbucks. And so um, so the dispensed goods category, they call it, anything that's not prepackaged, mm-hmm. what, there's a, there was a big fight to get share. And so that's everything from nachos and hot dogs that are rolling on the rollers to uh, coffee and all the flavorings. And so um, I was in what they call downstream fuel. So when, you're, when you go into petroleum, you can either go to upstream, you go exploration, which is where they go find the oil. You can then go upstream to the refineries or you can go downstream, which is kind of when it's refined. Last mile. That's right. The last mile. You got it. And so I had the choice and I said, well, I'll just, you know, they sent me, they wanted me to go to either Louisiana to go to refinery or go to corporate. And I, without hesitation, said corporate. And I know that sort of destined me for a suit every day because I had to wear a suit every day to go to the office. I was in a 50-something story building. I was on Bell Street downtown Houston. But I was a guy, I was a kid out of a small town, Somerville, South Carolina. Our tallest building is literally the Holiday Inn, like no joke. And I went there for my prom uh, for dinner at the 10th floor on the Holiday Inn looking at the harbor. Sounds grand. So it was wonderful, Um, you know, um, (laughs) in the Waffle House later. Um, But working in a 50-something story building as a 21 or 22-year-old right out of college guy. Didn't know anyone in Texas. No one. I'm not getting by myself. You know, I grew up really quick, but I enjoyed every, I mean, I savored every moment of it. And to this day, I'm a huge Exxon uh, mobile fan because of the way they treated their employees. 
You know, I think there's an interesting analogy here. What I love about small business and property management specifically is that <clears throat> it's the ultimate proving ground in many ways for great ideas, great concepts that you read in a Harvard business review. That's interesting. That's intellectual. But if you want to apply it, on a small business landscape, things get real, real quick. And indulgent ideas don't survive, only the best do. In the environment that you described, retail at a gas station, what did you find was kind of the interplay between corporates' desires and ideas and ambitions and just the reality of working with the folks and the the, the staff that's running a gas station? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I was raised by a I, mean, I come from pretty humble beginnings. I mean, I, I wouldn't characterize this as poor, but I mean, my dad worked three jobs. He was a veteran, you know, worked in, he was an Air Force guy, also had two other jobs. My mom worked two jobs, you know, and I mean, I mean, the house I grew up in is half the size of my basement in my house today. Mm. And that was the house I grew up in for 17 years. I mean, mm. I didn't, I never thought it was small. I never thought it was big. It was just home. Um, and my mom and dad always, it was just an interesting observation. My mother um, yeah, I do a lot of work with individuals with Down syndrome and people ask me, well, why do you do that? And I'm like, well, there's something loving about these individuals. And my mother always exhibited that, not just by her words, by her actions. So she worked in the school system, not as a teacher, because neither one of my parents went to college. My dad went back to college. In fact, we graduated from college the same year because he wanted to get a college degree. So my dad graduated using the Air Force for a program. And literally the same year I graduated from Clemson University, he graduated with a four-year degree, which was amazing, right, to go back that late in life and get a degree. But my mother always befriended the cafeteria workers, the custodian staff. And it was just like, to me, that was uh, normal. But the te- And I'm not being critical of any administration at school. I just seemed like the teachers were less concerned about that. My mom was always hanging out and befriending the people that really did the work, the bus drivers, that no one gave a second chance to. And so it really taught me, you know, that the world works because of hardworking people. Mm-hmm. And, and really, they're the smartest people in the room because they see everything. They, they observe. They see, they see who's kissing. They see who's holding hands. They go and clean up things when people leave things behind. You name it. And so when I was at Exxon and I had this territory of 13 gas stations with about 28 employees each because they're 24-hour stores. They had these ships. And you know, these are um, you know these are folks who typically may have an associate's degree that run the store at best, mm-hmm. definitely high school diploma, um, you know, and they and they're and they're all good people. They're just hardworking, and that's their job. And so I would pull a third shift with them, mm. and I was the only. I just remember getting a lot of. I didn't do it for show. I did it to send a signal to my team that we're measured on profitability, and not a store near a jail. And I remember one night someone called in sick. And so I put on my Exxon shirt that I didn't really have to go work at a convenience store. It was my territory shirt. I'd go make my visits. And I went in and I worked the shift because it was the only way to keep the store open. And I didn't tell a soul I did it. I just did it. And somehow the word got out that I had done this. And I was surprised it was such a big deal. I guess looking back, you know, I guess, I mean, I, I guess it's interesting that the territory manager would come run a convenience store. But to me, it was like, hey, it's my store. I get measured on profit. I can't close it. And I don't want to send a message to my employees that if you call in sick, mm-hmm. you get to shut the store down because mm-hmm. it's not our short store to close. And so, um, um, and when I went to IBM, I did very, something very similar with AutoZone. AutoZone's a big manu- uh, retail car store. They had a 24-hour store. I went and pulled a shift at AutoZone and I put on a red shirt and I learned how to stack batteries, uh, recycle batteries. And, and I did that because I remember the result that I got at, IB, at Ex, uh, Exxon and I got the same result at IBM. I think it was like a shocker that people, they wouldn't expect someone at my level to jump in. And I'm like, man, this is like what we need to be doing. Like 
this is where you learn. I like this is where the rubber meets the road, folks. You so, got to lead. You got to lead from the front. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm a big believer in that. I get it. It's relatable. Yeah. So this great experience and yeah. journey that you have at Exxon, mm. and then you move. Why did you end up moving for Exxon to IBM? Well, you know, I, I, I told you I, I'm a pretty ambitious guy, and I have this idea that if I at Exxon, I mean, like, you know, like I said, Exxon John, the executives like me, but I looked at how long it was going to take me to climb the career ladder because Exxon was a big, I mean, IBM's a big company too, but I was like, you know, it's probably going to take longer than I'm willing to be patient. And I was in this executive MBA program. There were 35 of us. It was a fixed program. And most of my colleagues had kids that were probably five or six years younger than me. So I was somewhere in between like knowing their kids and related to the children as much as I related to them. And so it was a fun place to be because, you know, I was just, I was like the bridge between these two generations. Um, I was 25 at this point. And, um, and I remember all my colleagues going, you got to get in sales. You have the person out for sales. The money's in sales. You got to get in sales, Bradford. And I heard that over and over and over. And then I, and, and again, my parents, my parents are like, they, they buy CDs. They're very, you know, they, they very fiscally conservative just because they save every penny. Like we're couponing people, like not like the crazy couponers on TV, um, but I'm just saying like w my parents save every penny and are very wise. And, um, and I feel like I have that, you know, I picked that up from them, um, you know, but you know, I guess, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I just feel like you, if you're going to, if you're going to be a, a, someone that's going to get into sales where the money is, you don't want to forget your roots. But I wanted to have an opportunity to make more than just a fixed salary. Mm -hmm. So IBM was looking for MBA hotshots in 2000 and someone and like referred me. And uh, then they gave me a $15,000 sign-on bonus. Now, 25 years old, $15,000 was a, was a much chunk of change. Like no doubt, like $15,000. And so, um, I'm curious, did you save the $15,000? Yeah, I, I did. No, I, no, I did. I did. I, I, I saved the money. In fact, I bought my first house and that $15,000, I mean, it was a ton of money. I mean, I mean, it still is a ton of money, I guess. But I, but the, the, oh my like, $15,000 just to like come work for you. Now I will tell you, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't mind sharing if I regret something. My first six months of IBM, I regretted going. I'm like, what have I done? I've like sold my soul to the devil because I didn't really know tech. I didn't consider myself to be some tech guy, but I was just learning and maybe I was just getting out of my comfort zone and now I'm realizing, okay, I've got a quota, I've got a target and I'm such a like goal-oriented guy, like I couldn't get it to go. And IBM has an old rule, if you miss three quarters in a row, you're gone. And that's just the way it is. And, and it's just a high performance sales organization. And and I was, I mean, I was not in jeopardy of that, but I was thinking about, I could be in jeopardy for that. And I was, didn't want to tell my parents because they're like, why are you leaving Exxon? You love Exxon. They love you. And I'm like, well, I want to get where the money is, right? Um, so I will tell you that I don't know what happened. Maybe I just relaxed and just said, hey, I got to get back to being me. So I focused less on the product and more about relationships. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, Memphis City Schools, I had Methodist Hospital, I had Federal Express, I had AutoZone. I was in Memphis, Tennessee, so I had a lot of Memphis-based headquarter companies. So I became less of the IBM sales guy and more of just their IBM contact where if they needed anything at IBM, you come to me and I, if there's a problem, I'm going to get it fixed for you. And I just started being me. And then it clicked. Like it just clicked. And I'm like, oh, sales is nothing. It's just be yourself. Have fun. Smile. And, and your word is good. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you say you have a meeting, you show up on time. Um, and 
I remember getting my first commission check and this was still physical checks. Like, like direct deposit wasn't that big yet. And my first commission check was $96,000 and I'm 25 years old. No, 20, no, 24. I had this goal to make like hundred grand if I was 25 and I, and I beat it. And I remember going home and I took this check out of the envelope and I showed it to my mom and dad. And they're like, what is this? I'm like, well, look at it. And they looked at it and they looked at me. They looked at it, looked at me. They're like, this is almost $100,000. I'm like, I know. That's my one quarter commission check. They're like, we've never seen that much money. And I'm like, well, I haven't either. And I'm like, now, of course, this was after I had gotten over this idea that, oh, God, why did I leave Exxon? Um, now I'm going, now I know why I left Exxon. <laughs> so I proved that, okay, once you settle down and do what you're, you can do, and um, then everything follows. Like the money follows. You just do your thing. So I had a successful career at IBM. Sands the first couple of months, <laughs> I guess, getting my sea legs, but I was there 10 years selling and I left um, on my own accord because I, I just wanted to do my own thing. So now I'm tracking. So you build up some capital and yes, exactly start doing right. some rental investments Bingo. on the side. Some more friends hear about it, get excited. You decide to manage for other people. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting how common that story is of sure. managing for, my, for myself, for my own properties. People ask. That seems to be a common refrain of how folks get into it. And everybody, yeah. not everybody gets as far as you did in property management. How long were you into that cycle before you got really clear and serious on starting an actual property management business? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I went through a really bad partnership um, where I had this guy who, you know, he was early, early gray. Um, so he looked older than he was. He drove the seven series BMW. He had the nice suit with his name inside. He was probably five or six years older than I was. Um, but I was introduced to him and I'm like, man, this guy, like he's really, he's got to go on. Oh, he's killing it. Right. And he's a super nice guy. Sort of learned later as a super con guy, but mm. you know, I guess you have to go through these things to learn. Mm -hmm. But what I learned was you know, I'm the talent. He's not, but he had me convinced that I needed him more than I knew that he really needed me. And once I discovered, figured out that this guy is really just riding my coattails, this was like before these fancy phones were here. I mean, I, I think I had like a little Nokia phone. I was mapping out houses on a giant, like real physical map with sticky notes and uh, a TomTom. -tom. Remember TomTom, -tom, the navigation? It was $1,000. I'm like, well, I'm not paying that. So I still used a map. I'm too tight to pay a thousand bucks. No way. And so I would just drive around with this map and I would pressure wash houses. I would fluff and puff pine straw. I was doing everything. And this guy would roll in in his seven series and and he would go find the capital, Jordan, because we were doing all these deals. And I felt like, well, gosh, he's the money man. I need the money man. And then I realized, oh, hell no, I don't need him. And so we had a, we went our different ways. Um, and we only went our different ways because I caught him taking money out of our bank account and then lying to me. And, um, and it about did me in. I mean, in sense of, um, had I not still been working at IBM, because I was, this, this was a hobby that had turned into like a serious business, but I was starting to kind of get two feet on both sides of the fence, if you mm -hmm. will. But my instinct, thank goodness I followed my instinct, was don't leave IBM until you, it's like crystal clear. And thank goodness it had not been made crystal clear to leave because, you know, I had to clean up a lot of glass from this guy because I had to, he had taken money from so many people at my, at our company's expense that they were all lawyering up. This was pre. Ooh, oh, it was. Oh, it was. Oh, it was a really interesting. Um, like some some security, security deposit trust fund kind it, of stuff. It was all about because he was a mortgage guy. Mm. He also did mortgage. That's how he got the money. 
And he was just doing some real shady stuff. And I had no insight into it because I wasn't in the mortgage business. But once I figured out, I was like, okay, I got to get away from him. And 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 so it's, it's interesting because, you know, my chief legal counsel today at Pet Screening was the attorney I met back then as the litigator that I was had hired to go after this guy. And then when I realized he had no money, that's why I was taking everyone else's money. You know, I probably could have put him in jail, but I didn't. I didn't think that was the right thing to do because karma is a bitch, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I'm just, I'm just not going to do that. So I went through that experience, but it just taught me I have a choice here. I can either Sunset Park Avenue properties, which wasn't what you know it as. It was completely different. We were flipping, flipping, flipping. We were building, flipping, flipping, flipping. Um, but I said, you know what? I'm just going to do what I'm good at, and that is finding a house, putting a person in it managing it and I'm going to do it the right way. And I went and resolved every legal issue on my own nickel because I wanted to preserve, I had picked the name Park Avenue Properties. Um, I had successfully got him out of the business and I wanted to make everything, every wrong or right, even though he did it, Mm. but it's like my reputation on Mm. the line. Mm. And to this day, I have realtors that still like will tell me like, you could have literally left my client in the lurch. And I'm like, I know I could have, but I'm not going to do it. I refuse to. Because I don't want to be that guy. So I settled all of these things this guy created for me and just then did it the right way. And looking back, I promise you, he's kept his eye on me. And I'm sure he regrets everything he did because I think he'd like to be a part of what I'm doing. And he could have been because I treated him like a brother. I really did. I took him to Walt Disney with me and his family. And then his check bounced when we got back. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Oh, boy. So you took your medicine. Yes. Chin up. Yep. That's right. Keep moving. You know, John, one of the things that I choose to believe is that when I find myself in really tough situations like that, you take a hard slap, you take an L. I choose to believe that the scale that I'm taking it at, at that point in time, will save me a much, much larger mistake later on. As time has passed, eventually we'll get to some of the more recent transitions for you. What did you take away from that experience? Did you, how do you feel about partnerships in general? Did that kind of burn you on partnerships? Have you applied any additional scrutiny to any other relationships as a result of that situation? Um, The answer, so I do believe partnerships can work and do work. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't experience that, but I believed in it. Um, I, I like to have like people around me that all believe in the same thing and, um, uh, but I mean, I felt burned for sure. And, um, and so, yes, it, it did. It, my view was jaded for sure on partnerships, but I was always careful and cautious not to criticize others because I know several partnerships, um, that have done wonderful things. I think it just in my case, I had someone that wanted, wanted half, but only wanted to put in, you know, 10% of the work, um, and a lot of show versus a lot of roll up your sleeves. And, and I'm a real doer. Like I, I don't, I don't ask people to do things that I wouldn't do myself or haven't done myself. And I think that's an incredible um, thing that um, that I wish more people would do. Uh, we used to at Park, so Park, fast forward in terms of got him out of my life. And so Park Avenue kind of started as the new Park Avenue. And we used to close the office and our office would, we'd all clean together. And I always clean the toilets. Mm. I, I said, I'll clean the toilets. Because I'm like, I can't ask my team to clean the toilets. I want them to see I'm cleaning the toilets. Mm-hmm. And I remember putting on the yellow gloves and cleaning the toilets. And and I have twin girls and they have a little business called the Tidy Twins. And they come and clean my office. Well, they don't do it now because we changed offices and we don't, we have communal bathrooms and the, the HOA or whatever does it. But in my old office, I told my girls, you're never too good to clean someone else's toilet and you better learn that now. So they came to my office and cleaned toilets. And I mean, I, mean, I think that's something that it's a work ethic that I think where a lot of people are they either don't understand or they're not doing. 
Um, so I think that hands-on, don't ask someone to do that you're not willing to do yourself. I think it means a lot to people. I dig that. You know what that makes me think about? It makes me think about the relationship between success and maintaining your edge. I'm grateful for every stitch of success that I have. At the same time, sometimes there's a little bit of paranoia. Is it ever going to make me soft? Am I going to lose my edge? Am I going to lose that drive, that hunger? Or maybe in that case, the willingness to do that. Like I'm here and I shouldn't have to do that. You know, there can be voices of entitlement that creep in about what we should and shouldn't have to do as you've kind of gone in this journey, what, what grounds you, what grounds you in your career as you have been able to do a a lot of really cool and interesting things? What, what's keeps you centered? You know, I just, you know, I've tried never to forget where I'm from. Like I, you know, people make fun of me like, you know, like you're a Walmart guy. I'm like, yeah, I love Walmart. Those are my people. I love Walmart. I'm on telling you, I like flea markets. Um, I like garage sales. Like, I mean, don't let the suit fool you. I'm just a regular Joe um, that wants to blend in with everybody else. And, and I don't look down my nose at people. I just, and it's not, it's just not in me. Like I just don't. Um, and so I think that's what keeps me grounded. And, you know, and I know people, you know, and endearingly will say, oh, you're so tight. Or you're such a this or that. I'm like, well, I'm not tight. I'm just, I don't know. I just kind of learned early on that my parents were wise with money. And so I'm very careful and cautious. It's, I'm not buying generic Coke. I just wait for Coke to go on sale. I mean, it's a big difference. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's different when I'm like sacrificing quality for something. I'll, I'll wait but I'm going to, I mean, I could, uh, I told, I was interviewed, some young uh, high school group interviewed me, entrepreneurs. And I said, you know, I could have any, like, I mean, I guess I could have any car in the world. Like, no joke. I can have, I can have any car I want. And I just went out and bought a five-year-old Porsche Macan. Five-year-old car that was less than my wife's latest Buick Enclave. <laughs> and, and, you know, why? Because I don't need a new car. I, I want a nice car, but I'll buy a used car. And so that's just, in, it's like in my fabric. It's just, so I think that's what keeps me grounded because at the end of the day, I plan for what you don't expect. And um, IBM really taught us everyone who, people who get focused on closing the deal, the ones that succeed the most are the ones that guess the problems that can go wrong. Mm. And so I've always thought that way, like what can go wrong? And if you can guess the objections or if you can guess what's going to go wrong before it does, and I apply that in my personal life because if, some, if, if something, and I didn't guess the pandemic, but if something, if the wheels fell off the bus, I need to have enough money to survive. So that's always why I'm putting money away, you know? So I don't know. I'm just, this is a great segue actually yeah. to get into property management, the investor mindset, the folks that we serve in this industry as a whole has the ability to really facilitate life-changing outcomes for property management. I've always found is a somewhat underwhelming term. It feels reactive by nature. When something bad happens, we come in. There's obviously a really proactive side, which is what you just said, wealth creation, through real estate, an intentional plan, a strategy, a vision, and a partner that enables and facilitates that. Talk to me a little bit about the ideal client profile of the type of person that for many, many years you were really focused on helping at Park Avenue. I mean, there were just, uh, frankly, there was people like me. I mean, I had, uh, I mean, my my first set of clients for quite some time were engineers from Exxon. They were salespeople from IBM. Um, These were people who had uh, decent jobs, who didn't have time to go find something, who trusted me immensely. And, and, and I meant it. I said, you can, 
I would not sell you something that I wouldn't buy myself. And in fact, if you don't buy it, I might. And some I did, some I didn't. It just depends. And 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 I wasn't bluffing. Like I, I truly was bringing them things that I thought was a good deal. Uh, my V, my VP who works at my current company, Pet Screening, he and I were IBMers together. We were hired three months from each other. Um, he was in Raleigh. I was in Memphis. And um, IBM, when we went to big sales meetings, they made us share rooms, which was, was interesting. Right? IBM, I got me to share rooms. So we'd go to the Venetian. We did it several years in a row. And he and I would be roommates. And I got to know him really well. He was a, he's a very, very good sales guy. Uh, he was a radio personality in college. So he has that fun personality. But he's an accountant, but he's really not an accountant. So I, that's, I, maybe that's why we got along so well. He's just a fun, fun guy. And, um, and so, you know, I think about, you know, sort of this experience of, of people like Mike who have these, you know, great personalities uh, who just get, you know, get out there and, and sell it. And he said, John, go find me some real estate. And we're like rooming together. To this day, he has acquired amazing wealth of real estate. And he'll just say, because of John. And I'm like, well, it's not because of me. I just helped you go find the deals and you've, you've played the long ball. And so now all his assets are paid for. He's getting amazing cash flow every single month. Park Avenue, uh, a pure company now, still manages them. And that was just a guy. We were roommates at IBM. I appreciate the casualty there. But in my experience, John, that actually isn't that common. The, the idea of actually going out and bird dogging, scouting, finding great deals. What What's your experience? How common do you find that to be within the industry for that to be a really a core part of the service? You know, I've said many times that I, you know, I mean, look, we need realtors, but I think there's a difference between a real, a, just a traditional realtor um, who does buyer agency or selling agent, then someone who has a license who's really bird dogging, looking for deals. Um, you know, like it's like going to a car dealership and I don't know, I don't pick a BMW. You go to a BMW shoot, and this guy's like, oh, look at this BMW. And the first thing I, I'll ask is, do you drive one? Do you drive a BMW? I'm like, oh, no, no, I don't. And I'm like, well, why not? Like, if you're going to sell something, support the products you sell. And so that to me, there's something very powerful about that statement. So I could look my investors in the eyes and say, I'm doing this. I'm doing it. I'm not asking you to do something I wouldn't do. In fact, I'm doing it. It's good for me and my family. Yeah, absolutely. And I and it wasn't showmanship. It was it was authentic. I meant it. And I was doing it. And I had to, you could deed search my name and find them. And so I, without being critical of others, it, it was no secret that not every realtor is a great investment broker because they wouldn't know the first investment if it probably if they bumped into it. I mean, honestly, they just wouldn't. They just, you know, they want to do a deal, don't get me wrong, but they're not thinking about it as though they're going to use their money and buy it. And that's what I always did. I'm like, well, if it was my money, let me tell you what I do. And, and I feel like I drive a pretty tight ship when it comes to that. And so that worked for me. And I think, the, I mean, I, I, and I feel like I've been, I was successful at it. So I, I think that's a good formula. Bryn here from Lead Simple. I love Lead Simple, but that feels like a given. Instead of telling you why I love it, here's Sarah Hatch from Hatch Property Management. We're very happy and I recommend so many people to Lead Simple because I'm like, oh my gosh, it changed our world. <laughs> it totally changed our whole way of uh, managing properties and staying in contact. It's the best business investment I've ever made. To learn more and connect with one of my teammates, go to leadsimple.com slash podcast today. You know, I think there's an adjacency there in brokerage versus property management in general. I think about it as like you get the fast money, you get the slow money, That's you right. got the big sex appeal, you got the the thing that really doesn't have as quite as much glitter around it. 
I enjoy this side of that divide. I find it rewarding. I find like it's there's kind of a long game there. What's your experience between the divide culturally between brokerage versus the management side of real estate? So, so, I mean, my company used to do brokerage. And what I found with the brokerage is it's a bunch of pomp and circumstance and a bunch of egos. And it's, uh, and it is, it's quick money and, and, you know, but it, it's not a, I mean, respectfully, I didn't view that as a business. The business is the person. Mm-hmm. And I felt like if I want to grow a business, you know, sans John Bradford, I, mean, I didn't choose John Bradford real estate. I chose Park Avenue properties. Which would be common, right? If you, yeah. did, if you had picked John Bradford oh, real yeah, estate. Yeah. I mean, it, I think a lot of people go and choose their name and I can, you know, and, and, and they're successful at it. They build a great reputation for themselves, but there will be a day when they don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. So who's going to come in and buy that business? Because the name and the, the reputation is is the person. So I was very careful to pick a name. Park County property sounds sexy, New York, boutique. I wanted to sound big. And we're just a little podunk firm, but I didn't want to be John Bradford property management or real estate. And so, um, you know, so I I felt like you're right. I, I think property management is one of the hardest jobs I've ever had comparatively to engineering. I mean, the academic rigor of engineering was tough, but beyond that, Property management is like, it's a hard job. It's it's a it's it's the it's the scraps that like nobody wants. But see, I think the joke's on them because if you get it managed well, yes, you have fringe cases of craziness. But that's what makes it entertaining. I mean, I'd rather have a job that's not monotonous, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's a spirited industry. I don't mind a a few crazy things going on, but. This is a thing that gives you on cruise control. And when the market tanked, man, I look like the really smart guy in the room when I could say, yeah, well, I've got monthly residual income coming in. And so I didn't wake up one day and say I want to be a property manager, but I very quickly saw how the compounding of fees added up to something that could be really grand and great, uh, more so than a brokerage. You know, Not to take away from brokers that do traditional sales. Of course. So that's why I did it. I'm taking notes on that term. It's a spirited industry. Write that down. Oh, yeah. I like that term. I've used it many days. So you mentioned 08. Let's just park there for a minute. Yeah. We've been on the longest bull run in modern history. Seems likely at some point things have to come down, but it's been a long while. And if I'm being honest, when that happened where I was in my career, it wasn't nearly as impactful as it would have been had it happened, let's say, five years later. You're mid-stride when this happens. How long had you had the management company when that whole meltdown happened? So um, I, went, well, I had my partner, and that all fell apart between 05 and 07. And I bought my first office on my own, meaning Park Avenue, just exclusively me. Um, I bought my office at the peak of the market, not knowing it was the peak of the market. Um, and just now, like now in 2021, the value of my office has exceeded the price I paid for. No. Yeah. Just now. Wow. That's how long it took to get back. That is incredible. You know? And so it just shows, I mean, I mean, I, you know, and I, I mean, I love the location, but you know, the, some, the guy that sold it, I mean, he laughed as well at the bank. So was it, was that market particularly inflated at that time? It was just, well, I was very, um, I was bullish on the area. I wanted walkability. And so I was, I was very narrowly tailoring it to an area that I wanted. And when this house came on the market, I mean, things were crazy. Um, and it appraised. And so I went and just grabbed it and, and, you know, and I, not everything has to make money. I mean, yeah, at some point you go, well, okay, yes, maybe I paid too much for it, but it was an amazing place to have an office. And so I, it paid for itself for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess, I guess the point being is 
I have experienced <laughs> bad buying decisions as well as I have done good ones. Um, and I just think that you have to think of this as a mutual fund. I mean, you're not going to pick right every time. I mean, it's like the stock market and you can't pick, you know, and, and you, and you know, it's like a blended average thing. You just, you buy and right now interest rates are low. But I remember in 2005 when rates were seven, 8%, that was low because when I bought my first house in Memphis, rates were 11%. Mm -hmm. And my parents were telling me when it was 18%. The Paul Volcker days. And look, let's face it. I don't care what, uh, I mean, I do care what the rate is, but it's levered earnings, a levered investment. Where in the world can you take $25,000 of real money that you have and go put it down on a $200,000 asset mm -hmm. and let the appreciation of the whole asset climb when you're literally only in for 25 grand as long as you can tote the note? Mm -hmm. That's an incredible powerful investment vehicle that you don't get with anything else. Cars depreciate, everything else, you know, I mean, stock market's a guessing game. So to me, real estate is, uh, you know, I mean, just the cost of goods sold. I mean, I was looking at, well, if this thing burned down tomorrow, what would it cost to rebuild it? Hell, that was more than the price I was paying. So how can you go wrong? And the good news is we didn't go wrong. We so, did not. So how did the market feel about that economic premise that you're articulating at the time, right? You're, the, you're talking about liquidity, the credit markets are tightening, what was kind of the vibe amongst investors and the types of people you're trying to work with when that was happening? Well, because we were buying um, the foreclosed assets, we were okay. Because even the foreclosed pricing, when it all fell apart, was probably fair market pricing. But at least we weren't so far, like we weren't upside down, but it definitely wasn't good on paper as, it, as we thought it was. Mm -hmm. But we knew we were buying it right. So... Um, you know, things had tightened up. Um, you know, the money was still there. And like I said, I was dealing with a group of people that had good paying jobs and none of them were burned. None of them. I'm very proud to say that not a single person that I had helped had been burned. Um, but I think that just lends itself to, I mean, not that I'm trying to take the credit for it. I just think that when you have a philosophy of going in, I'm going to go buy something that is the same price or less than what it would cost to rebuild it. And back then we could do that math. Then like, how can you go wrong? It's a safe place to be. And, you know, I don't know. And it just seemed to work. Maybe I got lucky. I don't know. So with that same lens and vantage point, how do you feel about the market right now? Um, you know, I'm not doing anything in the market right now. Um, so, and I don't criticize that do. I just, um, That's not, basically your answer. That's where you're yeah, at. You're yeah, not doing I'm not, anything. I'm not buying anything. It's pretty in, much yeah. indicative of the rest of the explanation. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a hot race out there and there's a lot of money out there, a lot of big money, a lot of capital and companies buying it. But they're, they're, I don't know. I feel like these larger companies that are doing it, they're, they're taking advantage of all the years that they bought it really right. Mm -hmm. And now they have to burn their capital down. They have to. So they, they may be paying a premium, but the blended rate amongst the whole story mm -hmm. is still a good deal. Mm -hmm. But that's for them. For your typical person who wants to get in this game right now for one asset, you know, you're going to be competing against that. Um, and again, I'm not, not saying it's not a good time to buy. It's just I'm choosing not to do that. I'm putting my money in other places, like Opportunity Zones. I, you know, I hear about those more and more. What's the what's the uh, skinny there? Yeah, so uh, Opportunity Zone, um, Senator Tim Scott, who happens to be from South Carolina, it was his piece of legislation. And Opportunity Zones are – it's a way to get um, people to – develop real estate in areas that um, typically need um, some sort of you know, regentr regentrification and some uh, some paddles on it to get it going. And so the government went out and said, okay, we're going to name true opportunity zones across the country. Um, and they're typically, we call them tier one, tier two, tier three counties in North Carolina, tier one being your most populated 
tier three being your least. So most of the opportunity zones, I would say, are in tier three for sure, maybe a few tier two. But the whole idea behind it is you have to improve the asset by 95% to qualify. So you can go out and buy a piece of vacant land in an opportunity zone. And if you build something on it, you are definitely improving it by 95%. But all of the money that you use to build the asset and to take down the land, just in this particular example, um, you're doing it because you're saving, you're, you're not going to pay taxes. Most people are doing it with capital gains. So rather than pay capital gains tax today, they're going to take that money, invest in an opportunity zone. They will create a QOZF and a QO, I think DB, and maybe the other term. I'm sorry, the, I, have, I have attorneys that are helping me do all this. But um, you, you put all this money that would be subject to capital gains, you could put them in these funds uh, that you create. So to, to kind of shelter it from the rest of your money. And then you draw from that money to go build your asset. And then you have to keep it 10 years. And if you keep it 10 years, all the money you put in is tax exempt as well as all the appreciation. Mm. So think of almost like a 1031 exchange. The difference is a 1031 is a deferral. Uh, opportunity zones are not a deferral. I guess you could say they're deferred for 10 years. But after 10 years, the tax event is yours to keep. And I think they can be good plays if you know what you're doing. I think I'm not so sure I know what I'm doing, but I've hired someone who can help me. <laughs> so that, hire someone who knows what they're doing. That sounds exciting, particularly yeah. inside of the, some of the changing landscape with, yeah. with 1031, et cetera. That's right. Uh, so pivoting back to Park Avenue, this journey of front when you rebirth it to when it changes hands of ownership, how long is that? What's that time frame? Is it a decade? Uh, yeah, a little over a decade. I think it's 13 years. All right. So John, I don't want to truncate a decade's worth of experience, but that's what I'm going to attempt to do here. Can you highlight what sticks out for you of the the hardest fought and the most valuable lessons that you would want to pass on to another business owner within that 10-year journey? Um, well, you know, I I mean, it sounds cliche, but I, I think you have to have a, an amazing team around you. Um, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, I... That's one thing I've been very fortunate. I've I have picked some damn good people through the years, and I don't consider a talent at all. Was that process? Was that gut? Definitely gut. Yeah, I think it's just gut. I don't know. I mean, I picked I picked wrong too, um, but I guess I've picked more times that were right than wrong. Um, but you know, so I would say you know you gotta you, you gotta get a team that's another. I mean, I was saying, oh, see your vision. Okay, look, we're a property management company. I was just saying, look, we're gonna go out there and we're gonna bring some technology. I mean, I was working at IBM. My overlap between IBM, I started Park Avenue in 2003. I left IBM in 2010. Seven years, I was burning candles from both ends mm. because I didn't want to leave IBM until I knew I had that stability. And, and remember the story about my partner? I'm glad I didn't because without the IBM commissions coming in, it could have truly done me in to settle all those lawsuits and things. Uh, but I wanted to do it the right way. And so I'm very grateful that somehow I, I was able to to just stick with it. Um, but in 2010, when I left IBM, I couldn't afford to stay at IBM. That's what it really boiled down to. I couldn't afford to stay at IBM anymore. That's when I knew it was time to go because I was making a really good living at IBM and people couldn't believe I was leaving IBM. And I'm like, yep, I'm leaving. And they're like, why? And I'm like, well, I'm doing this property management thing. And they're like, what? Like, I had just been so off the radar doing it. My management knew it was no conflict of interest, but I just didn't like talk about it. I just went and did my thing, right? Heads mm -hmm. down off the radar and go grow it. Um, and I just, I think, hired some really good people. And um, and and through the years, I mean, even, even today, I mean, I have employees, I mean, outside of 
um, Jennifer Stoops, I know was on your show recently. Um, she was with me for, I guess, 13, 14 years. But I mean, to this day, we have people who've been with us like nine, 10 years. And that's a long time in this space where you get mm -hmm. you burned know, out. Well, every day someone's mad at you. Mm -hmm. Every day someone's mm -hmm. mad at you because mm -hmm. it just is. We're in that role. We're in the middle, right? We're the monkey in the middle. Someone's mad at you. But, you know, but I think they've stuck with us because, you know, I think they feel like they're treated well and, you know, I mean, I'd love to tell you we have this great culture. I don't know. We tried to. We've done camping events. We're getting ready to do our ninth annual camping trip. I don't even own the company anymore. I'm a part of the company, but I'm still doing a camping trip because that's important to me that we try to keep that going. So we're doing our ninth annual camping trip. Right? We'll get everybody cabins, and we go out, and we camp, and I cook for them. I do pancakes in the morning. I do donuts on Sunday. Mm. I've been doing this exact thing for nine years. And, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that's why they stayed, but I think they've enjoyed that type of crazy stuff so you had some wins and some successes yeah. with personnel i'd like to think i have as well mm -hmm. i'm curious i know you've heard the refrain from some folks that just kind of have this story of i can't find good people and they're they're in that story for months and it turns into years and it's heavy when you have a conversation with somebody who's been in that story for a long time of I just can't find good people, what would be your message, your advice to kind of inquire as to why some folks get stuck in that loop? Well, I mean, you know, I can only speak from my own experience here. Um, the people for me who, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll pick on Jennifer Stoops because I, I think the industry knows her really well. She, Jennifer, I ran an ad in a newspaper classified, like a print ad, which doesn't really exist anymore. And she called me and I didn't go, oh, she's going to be my right hand. Like at that time, I didn't know. But she called me, we interviewed, she came in, she's like, well, I'll do whatever. And I just think, frankly, you know, sometimes it's right before your eyes, you just have to open your eyes and see it. Mm -hmm. um, and there are very capable and competent people who are loyal and loyalty goes a long way with me. And, and Jennifer was, I mean, she started at the very bottom. I mean, we were a small firm. She was like doing whatever. And, and by the way, she wasn't alone. She had other people, anyone at my company could have had the opportunity Jennifer did if they just would have seized the moment. So I saw something in her that she was willing to do the charity thing on Saturday and wear the company jersey, go the extra mile. I mean, sometimes you got to do more than just your job to demonstrate that you're in like Flynn, right? You got to go. And so she's willing to go to the elementary school and work the, the little carnival and this or that. And um, and so her work ethic is really what positioned her, um, you know? And so I would just tell people, you know, you may have someone there that you're not even recognizing yet. You look around like who, I mean, just you know, like, what's that? Like um, those um, lightning round questions. And you have to you just you say the first thing comes to your head. So if I went in and said, pick one person to run your company the next two weeks, who would it be? And like the first person you say, you may want to say, why did I say that? Mm -hmm. And look into that because you said it for a reason. And maybe there's something there, you know, there's a lot of good people out there. You just got to go look. Give me one more piece of advice on getting out of your own way. You have spoken at so many NARPM events, chapter, national, whatever. What, what, how many NARPM events do you think you've spoken at? Oh, Can my you? goodness. I don't know. I'd like to talk. So. 20, 30. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I've done my fair share. It's. I mean, I, I, I've seen you at a number, and yeah. I'm not at most of them. Mm -hmm. So I know yeah. you're out and around. And mm -hmm. I know that there's a lot of conversations that are kicked off as a result of that. Somebody want to take you aside. Hey, appreciate what you said. Mm -hmm. I got a situation. Can you give me some advice? Can you give me any more feedback just around a common 
pattern that you see folks kind of in that would be an example of getting out of your own way where the solution is really just maybe a reframe on on how you're viewing or, or dealing with things, an area where people commonly get stuck? You know, I mean, I was just talking about yesterday. I feel like, and, and I, I don't think this is exclusive to property management. It's probably any industry. but Small my business. Yeah, exactly. But my observation has been through the years that people pay to come to these conferences, right? And then when they're here, they don't really take full advantage of the conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and they to each his own. Um, the, the more notably would be walking a trade show floor. Mm. And you come across, let's say you find two two things and the vendor show you, wow, these are really neat solutions or really neat things. And you get really fired up about it and you take copious notes while you're there, you know, and then you go home and guess what happens? You get busy. Not a damn thing. Until the next conference. You're like, oh, I meant to do this. And see, like that is getting in your own way. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something. I don't know a lot, but what I do know is when I went to, when I was a new NARPA member and I went to conferences and I, I remember Susan Alburn when she started, um, mm-hmm. um, oh goodness, Night Tenders. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. She started Night Tenders and I'm like, yes, 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 I'm going to do this. I went home. We did it. And it was the, one of the best decisions we ever made. I know Susan sold that business, but my point is it was like such a no brainer. And I went home and did it. And I didn't think twice about it. And I do think that property managers get in their own way by trying to do everything. And then they don't get to the things they really need that would free up their time to do more. Mm-hmm. And I never understand it. I can only observe it. I, maybe it's just human nature. I don't know. John, you've done a lot in your career. And one of the things that I think about frequently is how do you? How do you make time to do new things? There's really two philosophies that I observe. One philosophy is I'm going to clear my plate. I'm going to free myself of all of these burdens, and then I'll have the margin to do something new. I like that idea. It's very attractive to me. I've never been able to execute on that. (laughs) I was going to say, can you do it? The other idea is I'm just going to go do the new thing if I'm really clear this is what I am meant and supposed to be doing. If it's compelling enough, I lean in and there's going to be some, there's going to be some fires. There's going to be some yelping, but if I have the right team, it's a leadership opportunity that that vacuum can be filled and it's opportunity for someone else. And there's a leap of faith. You kind of got to sort it out. But if you have the conviction, things will, will work. I'm going to have to assume that there was some of that that's happened with some of the voids that you have created by virtue of the new things that you've done. I'm thinking about the public service work, the work with pet screening, et cetera. How did you navigate or or get to the point where you felt like you had permission to go do something that was obviously going to leave a hole in a vacuum in a role that you had previously held? So I I truly believe where there's a will, there's a way. Um, And so if you have a mindset that you want to do something, then get it done. I mean, whether you clear a calendar or just pile on top of your calendar, get it done. Um, And for my own journey in terms of these businesses I've started, I think the legislature was probably the first true you know, like that was a hole because the legislature required me to be three hours away, four days a week for seven and eight months at a time. Okay. That's a, that's a big commitment. I'm away from my family. I'm away from my business. I'm away from anything that's not in Charlotte. I was in Raleigh. And so I remember sitting Jennifer and Brad, um, I always had this idea that Park Avenue was a giant airplane flying through the sky. And I said, okay, we need two two pilots in the cockpit. That way, one of you, if you need to go to the bathroom, you can. The other still flies the bird or whatever. And Brad was our legal counsel, and Jennifer was, you know, Jennifer's Jennifer. She she was like a very utilitarian. I mean, she's not a lawyer, but she has very good legal instincts and 
um, you know, but you still need a lawyer. And so I recognize that. So I kind of had this Brad and Jennifer thing. And I used to be, I called it the John and Jennifer show. We Jennifer and I would come to Narpum and everyone knew John and Jennifer. Like, I, I'm not saying everybody, I'm not like trying to sound like we, we're, we're popular. I'm just saying that I felt like people saw the two of us together and they're like, okay, those two have a good working relationship. And so I tried to liken it to say, okay, now it's the Brad or Jennifer and Brad show. Okay. And Brad though, was just our legal counsel. And Brad's aspirations were different. So I would really push Jennifer to say, okay, it's the Jennifer and who show. Because she wanted to be on the NARPM board for a long time. And I'm like, you should. But I can't agree for you to be on the NARPM board until you tell me it's the Jennifer and who show. Because John is doing the legislature and I need you to be doing this. And if you are going to want to go and do these other great things, which you are capable of and I want you to do, you can. But you have one job and your job is to find someone to replace you. That's your job. Mm-hmm. And and I think if you were to ask her, she'd tell you that she struggled with that until she finally got it and said, okay, I need to go find someone to to be the surrogate me. And um, in my current company, in my current company, pet screening, you know, kind of the same thing. It's like I now have people running the show so I can do my other things. And um, I've just been lucky enough to I think find people that are willing to take a bet on me and do it. You know, I've never, you know, I don't know. So you're one of the few people that's made this jump from the property management side to the vendor side. Um, not a ton of folks that have done that. I don't know that there's anybody that's made the reverse jump, but there's a small number of people that sit on both sides of that. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about that play is in software, there's this concept of dog fooding, which is to say using your own stuff. You know, if you sell a CRM, do you actually use the CRM? Kind of the same commentary you're making about investment rentals. The context that you had and that you're swimming in day to day, how did you arrive at pet screening? Were you looking for an opportunity? Was it an aha moment in the shower? How, how did we get here? So <clears throat> Park Avenue was managing investment portfolios in Indiana, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina. And so we had pockets of, of portfolios that were being brought to us. They called them tapes, right? That's what the industry called them. Um, so it was for like companies like Imitation Homes, American Homes Rent, et cetera. And we had inherited two portfolios in Florida, one in Florida and one in Indiana. And within six weeks of each other, we had two dog bite incidents. Okay. Just, just, you know, pure circum, you know, happenstance. And, um, our legal counsel, Brad said, John, Florida and Indiana both have state statutes that say that if you have, if you have insurance, you have to disclose it. And I was always the guy that said, we're not going to disclose our insurance. Cause we're not, cause once you give insurance, you know, it's like now they've got it and they're going to make a claim, but we had to give our insurance. And so insurance came in and they, they, they settled these two dog bite incidents. And I'm like, we didn't even place these tenants. Like we inherited these portfolios with the people and the pets. And I was really frustrated because my insurance rate was going up because of these two bites um, that I had nothing to do with. Nothing. Our company had nothing to do with it, except it, we were the responsible party because we were the manager because we were assigned these giant. And we had just had them for like three weeks. Like it was so like, I'm like Murphy's Law. Um, but I remember asking Jennifer and Brad, I said, okay, well, hang on. What if we would have placed these tenants? What would we have had on these dogs? And I remember both of them giving me the academic answer, um, which is great because you would expect your legal counsel and your a person running the company to give you a, an academic answer. And so um, I think my team would tell you that I'm a master tester. Like I test things very politely, but I, another don't take people's word, but I like to just challenge things. So I went to my frontline property managers. I said, hey, what do we do with dogs? What, how do we do it? 
And the answers that I received from our property managers was much different than the academic answer. Mm. And I thought, okay, let me do some self-analysis here. I have a firm that I feel like is pretty forward-thinking with in-house legal counsel. I feel like we're a shop that runs pretty tight, but we're not really doing enough consistency with, with dogs in general. Now, I can't tell you that was the moment I went, oh, I got to go create a program. It was just like, kind of put a pin in that. So serving in the legislature, I was a freshman. I was in my, I think it was in my second year of my first term. And um, people in the legislature, we all tend to get to know what you do for background. I'm not a lawyer with tons of lawyers in the legislature, but I'm like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm the business guy. So if we need business ideas, someone pragmatic, I'm your guy. And so anytime someone called the state legislature, the Senate of the House, and they had issues about assistance animals, they're like, oh, go to Representative Bradford. He runs property management. He knows about assistance animals. And I'm like, no, I really don't know that, but I'll fake it till I make it. So I will help you. And so I started helping people with their assistance animal questions. And my answer was always the same. These were federal guidelines, not state guidelines, North Carolina, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that was hitting my plate. Again, put a pin in that. So those two things that happened, I went to a broker owner in Vegas for NARPM. And if Gail uh, Phillips and all my NARPM friends are listening, or at some point, they'll put a big smile on their face. I went there. It was the first meeting I'd gone to where I wasn't in a suit. I was in a ball cap. I mean, because I like, I prefer to be in ball cap um, and jeans. And, um, but I had no votes and I was able to fly out there last minute and no one knew I was coming. And I just kind of kept my mouth shut and I show up at this meeting. There was a thousand people and I just kind of slip in and I go into the, and, and that meeting is only main tent sessions, like one big room at the time. That's the way they did broker owner. One big room, one topic at a time. And you were all in this room together. And this had like 900 people, Vegas style room. They had three microphones across the back. They had the assistant deputy director of HUD's enforcement office speaking. His name was Brian Green. And Brian got up there to speak about fair, fair housing issues in HUD. So I, I was expecting him to speak about familial status and disparate impact and probably assistance animals. And he had an hour and he opened with assistance animals. And he never left the topic ever for the whole hour. In fact, they let him go 15 extra minutes. I, I think that's what Gail shared with me because he was up there for a while. And the microphones, there's three of them. We had 12 people deep the entire hour. And a lot of people are asking the same question a different way. I'm like, okay, people, pay attention. You're, this has already been asked like two people ago. But that's classic. <laughs> people just want to say it a different way. And this poor guy would just keep answering the questions the same way in a different way to pacify. But it was in that room. That was my aha moment. I was in that room. And I, I, I like, and, and this sounds so like cliche, but I literally remember doing like looking across my shoulder, seeing these people on this microphone. I looked across this one. I saw these people on this microphone. And I'm like, there is an opportunity for me to use my legislative background, which I was already demonstrating that I was the tenant landlord go-to guy in North Carolina, and I still am. There's got to be a way to do this. So it was in that room that I started looking for domains. Didn't find pet screening. Uh, I, can't, I think I had a, like a Blackberry or something, but I don't remember what kind of phone I had at the time. But I started looking for domain names, and it wasn't that long after when I came across pet screening, and it was a screen for pet doors. And I'm like, well, that's not, you know, that's when you did pet screening, that's what came up, but the domain was available. And so I squatted on the domain and went and met a developer that I knew and tried to hire him to come work for me to help me get this idea off the ground. Um, and, uh, and he's now our CTO. So but th that's, that's really the aha moment was if these people who are the, who are smart people run their firms and if they're not getting it, then I know no one else is getting it, but I get it. And I'm going to go find a way to make sure they all have help. 
And that is where the idea of pet screening was born. And so just for maximal clarity, there's always a big gap between what it was and what it is now. Yeah. The original premise or the problem you were trying to solve for versus what it's become today. I have to assume there's probably been some some shift there. What, what's any any gap or pretty much the exact there, same it's, thing? It really, um, it's the exact same thing with the addition of one lane. I was focused on a pet management tool um, that helped with assistance animal verification. So pets and animals. What I was not thinking about was people who had no pets, no animals. I think, well, they don't have a pet or an animal. How, why would they ever go do pet screening? And so for the first 18 months, I was focused on pets, animals. And if you didn't have a pet, well, obviously, we're not concerned about that. One of our gray star managers said, John, love your product. Because it was we were, we were selling it. They're like, but we need help with people who, who say they don't have a pet but do have a pet. And I'm like, that's interesting. So we came up with the idea of a no pet profile. So that was our third. So if you think of a bar stool with three legs, mm -hmm. little did I know I only had two legs in my bar stool. It was pets, animals. The one we weren't thinking of was no pets. And if you think about every applicant in America, they fall in one of three categories. They either have no pet, no animal, they have a pet, or they have an animal. Meaning, and I use pet and animal differently because in the context of fair housing, they are different. An, an animal being what, a bird? No, no, I'm sorry. An animal being, um, uh, think of someone who needs a wheelchair. The wheelchair is an assistive device to their I quality see, of life. In this context, the animal is for someone with a disability and you can't charge animals pet fees because they're not pets. Mm. So assistance animals would be a leg. Household pets would be a leg. And mm. then people who have no pets. So the third thing that we've added in our tool that I did not think of from the beginning was this no pet profile. And it has been one of the greatest things we've ever done because we get people on the record who say they have no pet or no animal, but we make them affirm that they understand that that means they can't pet foster. They can't pet sit. They can't let their girlfriend or boyfriend bring their pet with over every weekend and shack. They do this by the way. And they're not thinking about the liability that they're, the culpability they're putting their owner in or their management company. So our no pet profile gets them on the record, acknowledging those policies because they just don't know. And it's a free, we don't charge for that. It's free for those people, but it's amazing how it just puts the issue in their eyes and go, oh, because there's a big side hustle right now in dog walking, pet sitting for other people mm -hmm. and doing it in the comfort of your own home. It's like an Uber driver, but you have people dropping pets off at your house. You're charging 50 bucks a night to pet sit and then you give the pet back. And that's great. And I'm a capitalist. Go for it. Make all the money you want. But you can't really do that in someone else's asset without them knowing. Mm -hmm. And that's all we're saying. You can do it, but you got to tell your property manager. So the no pet profile was one that we launched, you know, two years after the product. That was the, that's the only been, I mean, we've had some other cool changes, but fundamentally it's been pretty similar. And so in terms of where you kind of sit in process, this is the very beginning of the of the tenant application process, just, just to get technical for a minute. Yes. In that actual tenant application process, what step do you sit in? Right as soon as the, I like to call it the, peop, the human application process, the people application process. When they submit their application for review is when our process would launch. Got it. So at the point that they're actually committing, paying an application fee, that's when they're kind of going through that. Right. But they have not yet been approved for their people application because we don't want to slow anyone down, but we don't want them going through our process unless they're serious about applying. So it's typically the, the humans apply first. I think of Yardi. So like we have a two-way integration with Yardi. This is more multifamily, but Rent Cafe, when someone finishes the application in Rent Cafe and they literally hit the enter button, as soon as they hit enter button, within eight, like eight, eight minutes, I think, as our two products talk back and forth, we get an API call going, hey, pet screening, you know, Susie Jones just applied at this unit. And then we grab that from Yardi and then we send a communication out to Susie and 
And so that, that's the trigger. I relate to what you were saying about being on that panel and everybody's asking all these questions. Assistance Animals does, and I don't say this condescending, but on the one hand, it almost, it seems like a trivial issue, like how complicated can it be? And on the other hand, it seems like it must be pretty complicated because yeah. there is so much confusion yeah. as to, and, and there's the perception of leeway, but presumably there's like less leeway. What are the most misunderstood things about what actually constitutes an assistance animal? Well, people conflate three things. They conflate the Americans with Disability Act, the ADA, which is really governs uh, public accommodations. So restaurants and hotels and, you know, things that public are welcome. And they hear about service animals in the context of, of the ADA. And then they conflate that with the Fair Housing Act, which also governs assistance animals. But assistance animals under Fair Housing Act extends more than just service animals. ADA limits it to service animals only. HUD introduces this thing called support animals. So now you have service animals and support animals under HUD, but yet support animals are not allowed in public accommodations under the ADA. And then you have this other term, oops, then you have this other term called ESA. Well, ESA is just a just a buzzword. It's emotional support animal. An ESA is a type of support animal, but we'll hear people just exclusively use the word ESA. I know what they mean. What they're really trying to say is we have a support animal and it happens to be an emotional support animal. You can have other types of support animals that are not emotional, but in my world, they're all support animals, okay? Then the third act they confuse is the Air Care Access Act, ACAA. That's airlines because airlines have issues with it and they all are different. They, they, they do, you know, like the a Venn diagram where the circles cross and there's that gray area, you know, the, the shaded area where they cross. Those three acts do cross, but there are pieces that are exclusive to each one. The biggest example would be under ADA, Miniature horses out of the gate are permissible type of service animal. A miniature horse, yes. These are small little horses. They look like they're stuffed animals. They're about 36 inches tall. They're like a big, medium, maybe a, a small, large dog. But the reason miniature horses are, are welcomed uh, in as a service animal is because they have a longevity of 25 years for living. So the money you spend to train these horses, it goes a lot farther than a dog that only lives 12 years. Okay, so you'd get triple, double or triple your, your uh, investment. And typically miniature horses, because they're small and we call it horsepower, they're strong. So for people who are obese and have mobility issues, a small horse could move them easier than even if they went and got like a Great Pyrenees, who typically has a lifespan of eight years. So a horse would be triple the life. So it seems sort of like an interesting thing that at dinner tonight, you could see a miniature horse at the table next to you. But under the ADA, you can't. But under Fair Housing Act, miniature horses are not out of the gate a type of permissible service animal. They're dogs only. And I still hear property managers talk about miniature horses because they don't know. The good news is they use pet screen. They don't have to know. We got the wheel for them. But um, so anyway, I don't want to get too far in the weeds. Just, and even attorneys don't understand it. And I, I get it. Attorneys have their lanes. But I always find it interesting when I go, we have attorneys that are using our service because they're renting, because attorneys rent too, right? They're renting some apartment mm -hmm. or some rental somewhere in America that's using pet screening and they get all puffy that we're breaking the law and then they realize, oh, even they don't understand it. So this this whole topic is kind of an ancillary to the legislative legal side of property management. And while I don't know much or have a really strong opinion about miniature horses, yeah. appreciate you mentioning that. That was an interesting segue. I didn't see coming. Yes. I think maybe an even broader issue would be things related to, let's say the eviction moratorium. NARPM has a pack for a lot of 
property managers, it's probably not different than your average citizen. It's like, what's the connection between me and Washington? There can be some apathy. When you think about addressing your average NARPIN member and talking to them about the impact, the level of involvement they can or should aspire to have, and what difference it could make legally, what are the issues that you think that they could reasonably impact or that are coming down the pike and should might actually get someone off the couch? I mean, it, it does collect, it's like a type of collective bargaining, right? You get a group, a pack, and you go out there and you call on your lawmakers. And the more they hear from you, the more front and center they are. And trust me, it works. I, I can't tell you the number of emails that I'll get from a particular group. And, and I may not know them. I'm like, okay, I'm taking note. Um, and, you know, law, lawmakers from federal level down to state levels, right? These are everyday people. They put their their pants on and their dresses on the same way as everybody else. Um, and And they are your representatives. And so, uh, you know, you want to go meet with the United States Senator, call the office and ask for a meeting with the United States Senator. You may be patient and have to wait a while, but you will get the meeting if you're persistent enough. And if they try to sideline you and send you to staff, maybe meet with staff and while you're a staff say, you know, I really would like to meet the Senator. You know, I mean, you can get your way to these individuals and even the people you see on CNN and Fox News and they're always in the headlines. You know, if Nancy Pelosi was your representative and you wanted to go see her you could probably pull it off. They are representatives, right? And so I challenge people, you know, if you, some of the best legislation that I've, you know, I think been a part of is typically come from people who have real life problems that surface it because I don't know everything. I mean, I, I don't. And so NARPM and our PAC, you know, and we enjoined on the lawsuit with the CDC, uh, you know, which is great, um, you know, but, you know, I, I think it, it can make a difference. It does make a difference. Um, you know, and it just takes time, you know, nothing moves fast. And so, um, I think you just have to, you know, stay the course and you gotta be consistent because if you just like stay in front of someone for like a couple of months and you go away, okay, that's it. But if you stand in front of someone for like a year, two years, three years, a movement starts to happen. So, and on what issues, I mean, what are the issues that you think are most critical to actually property rights? I think is the biggest one right now. I feel like property rights are under attack. Um, I, I feel like this country is, um, you know, the, I think the eviction moratorium is a, is a great example of where, and I get it, we were in a pandemic and people didn't have jobs and we had to help people, but that was not measured. Meaning if you were going to pay, give unemployment checks to people and help for a pandemic, fine, but you need to earmark percentages of these checks to be used for their most basic essential services, including the roof of your head utilities, because you need power, food. There was no measured, there was no measurement for that. So people were, um, and I'm not, I think people are inherently good. I do believe that. Um, sometimes I have to reach deep there, but I do think people are good. But I do think there's a lot of bad actors who took money and chose not to pay their landlord because they knew they weren't going to be evicted. And they took that money and they kept buying Grubhub and they kept buying food out and they kept doing everything else but doing what they should have done. And that was not what that was intended for. And I just think that's a great example of like, you know, where big government can um, can get in the way. And I worry that there's this mantra that investors who own real property, that they can just take it on the chin. Don't worry about them. But these are small business owners, Jordan. That's what they are. Those small business owners turned around our real estate economy and should we should be grateful for that. But I felt like we were turning our backs on them at the expense of a almost a civil injustice that we need to help people and not let them, they can't evict them. And I'm like, well, the only reason you get evicted is if you're not paying your rent. 
Well, if you're not paying your rent, then that means you must not have a job. And if you don't have a job, then that means you must be getting some sort of unemployment. And in this case, you were. Well, then how do I know you're not using your unemployment or you should be to pay your rent? And I just feel like there wasn't anything measured there. And that, that in property rights, you know, people telling you what you should do and, you know, you should have to use this color house or this much brick and masonry product. That stuff drives me a little nutty because I believe that if I'm going to buy something, it's mine. I understand rules. Don't get me wrong. But I think property rights are under attack. I do. We live in some wild times. Who could have predicted where we're at or that we'd even be having a conversation about those types of issues, at least at this scale? I appreciate the passion on that. I want to end on one other area where um, I'm hoping you have some passion. John, what is one worthy cause that you feel strongly about that receives your time and attention? Well, you know, I mentioned earlier on the show that um, I, I am, um, I'm a big advocate of the Down syndrome community. People have intellectual and developmental disabilities. I think they have um, very unique abilities. I, I try not to f- focus on their disability, but what unique abilities they have. I've hired three uh, individuals with Down syndrome to work for my uh, legislative office in Raleigh. Um, and each person from Paul to Me- uh, Megan to Matthew had different strengths, just no different than my employees who don't have IDD. They have different strengths. And I just... You know, um, it's something I'm very passionate about. In fact, at Pet Screening, we've started our own uh, philanthropy called PS for DS, Pet Screening for Down Syndrome, where we um, provide grant money to individuals with Down Syndrome to go use for the sole purpose of adopting a dog or a cat out of a shelter for companionship. Mm. Um, And so our goal is to try to, I like to say we want to save a life to save a life because people with Down Syndrome have amazing connections with with pets and animals. I've seen it myself and, um, and, and a lot of families can't afford the fees and things like that. So we provide a grant to help them. And it just, you can't buy a breeder dog. Like you got to get a foster, you got to basically get a rescue or a shelter dog. And um, that's been an incredible program that we've started just to kind of prop up our, or my personal desire to help individuals with Down syndrome and very passionate about that. And, and if, you've, if, you, if you're having a bad day, Go talk to someone with Down syndrome and they will love you. They will um, unconditionally. They will hug you unconditionally. They will dance. They will sing. And it's unbelievable. I think um, I think they're angels. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. You bet. Thank you for giving back and contributing to this space and this industry that we work in together and that we share. I spend my time here. I come to these events and a lot of what I get out of it is the relationships and the conversations. And I appreciate people like you that are, that are adding, not just being a taker, but really contributing and have something to add. So thanks for doing, doing that, well, John. You bet. And we, and listen, we, we appreciate your, um, uh, someone told me before I came, they're like, he's an amazing interviewer. So yeah. So you've, they, they set my, they set the bar high. You do a nice job. So thank you for all you've done and congratulations on your success. I find you to be a very grounded person. Um, and, uh, and quite the entrepreneur yourself. So I'm sure you don't give yourself an credit, but you can't interview yourself. <laughs> you may try that sometime. Interesting concept. Pre-record the questions and then get in the other seat and answer them and then <laughs> tap, tag it together. We'll leave it there. Thank you, John. You Appreciate you. My Thanks pleasure. for coming on, brother. Thanks for having me.